online during COVID. And at the time, I was kind of uh, continuing working through Colossians, so I'm going to pick right up where I left off, but it won't be a big deal if you don't remember the last one. But it's good to be back with you in person. I, trust me, it's a lot more enjoyable than sitting in my office talking to my computer screen, imagining what you all think of it the next day. So our scripture reading is from Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But I'll be focusing just on three of those verses, the last three, verses 8 through 10. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And now the verses we'll be focusing on. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. So tomorrow, October 31, as every child in this room knows, is Reformation Day. <laughs> the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg to try to start a conversation about the sale of indulgences in Germany. Because Luther was concerned that the German church, the people of the German church, had been deceived. Deceived into thinking that by performing certain meritorious deeds or even paying money, they could get themselves or their loved ones out of purgatory. As Luther came to realize, and other reformers like him, people were deceived in many other ways as well. They were deceived into thinking that the Pope in Rome was Jesus' authoritative representative, who had the power to condemn them to hell if they did not obey his commands. They were deceived into thinking that the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper, actually became the body and blood of Jesus such that they regularly worshipped the bread and the wine. 
Now, lest we get triumphalistic, the deception of Christians does not end, not even for Protestants, at the time of the Reformation. As you know well from our own history in this country, many Reformed Christians have been deceived into thinking that God wants one race of people to be segregated from another, and that he wanted their race to be in a superior position, both in culture and in the church. But lest you think that this is just something that people in the past, that happened to people in the past, this sort of deception, today, many people in the church, I dare say even in our own denomination, are deceived into thinking that various forms of sexual immorality, as long as they express a person's natural, powerfully felt orientation or two people's sincere love for each other, are actually good and life-giving, and that the church should then affirm those relationships. We could go on and on. The New Testament warns Christians over and over not to be deceived. In Romans 16, Paul warns the Roman Christians against people who cause divisions. He says, For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. In 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, Paul writes, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, he writes, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. In 2 Corinthians 11, he writes that he is afraid that the Corinthians will easily be deceived and seduced if someone comes and preaches another gospel to them. In Galatians 6, verse 7, when calling the Galatians to perform acts of mercy for the needy, Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. In Ephesians 5, verse 6, after mentioning various sins, Paul writes, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And in 2 Timothy and 2 Timothy, Thessalonians, Paul warns that in the latter days, evil people will come, evil teachers, seeking to deceive the faithful and will succeed in leading many people astray. And again, we could go on and on. Scripture warns us constantly and emphatically not to be deceived. So how are you being deceived? Of course, we think to ourselves, well, I would not be deceived. I, I'm a careful Christian. I follow the Bible. But, of course, people are rarely intentionally deceived. And so Paul is actually not warning us against ideas or practices that are obviously wrong to us. 
The whole danger lies in the things that seem right and compelling and true to us. It, it comes from aspects of culture and the world around us that seem most attractive. It comes from the ideas and traditions that we grew up with, that we hold most dear. It comes from things that, that to us seem so deeply rooted in the basic nature of life. That's why we're deceived by them. So this passage, these just few verses, is basically structured around two parts. There's a negative warning, Paul's warning to us not to be taken captive or deceived or fooled, followed by a positive reminder of where our mind should be focused, where we should find our fullness if we are not to be deceived. So first, the negative warning. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Now, there's a lot of language there, and sometimes people get hung up on it. I remember being in in college and taking an intro to philosophy class, and it was a Christian college, and the professor had to explain why this didn't mean philosophy was a bad thing for Christians to study. I don't think philosophy is a bad thing. I think the key to understanding what Paul is warning us about here is that phrase that the NIV translates, elemental spiritual forces of this world. This is a word that if you look at a variety of different translations will be translated differently as the NIV has, as you see elemental spiritual forces. The New King James translates it as basic principles, which seems quite different, doesn't it? The ESV translates it interchangeably as elemental spirits or elementary principles. The Greek word, and I do not normally bring Greek into a sermon, but in this case I will, the Greek word is stoikeia. Stoikeia, that's what Paul is warning us not to be deceived by. And stoikeia in the ancient world meant, or it's often interpreted as meaning multiple things that it did mean in the ancient world. On the one hand, it's interpreted as referring to spiritual forces, such as angelic beings or demons, or even the gods, in pagan thought, of stars and planets and other parts of nature, who, it was believed, controlled the destinies of human beings. So in Galatians, Paul uses the word very clearly to refer to the false gods worshipped by pagans. But in other instances, and this is why you have the translation confusion, in other instances it's interpreted to mean the basic rules or laws or principles by which the world works, including basic principles of piety, religion, or justice. And these principles reflect the creation order in some way, but in Paul's view, they've been distorted by sinful humanity. So they're created good, but they've been distorted. 
And so in Galatians and later on in Colossians, Paul actually uses the term to refer to the principles and commandments of the Mosaic law when they are served as if Christ had not fulfilled them. They're good, but they've been corrupted. Now, the problem with our translations is they often choose between one or the other of those meanings. And what I want to suggest to you is that we shouldn't choose, that Paul actually has that whole range of ideas in mind, both spiritual forces and basic principles of the world, because the problem that leads us to separate those is actually a modern way of thinking. In the ancient world, they did not separate spiritual forces like angels and demons and gods from the basic principles of the world. Those things were all seen as being part of one and the same reality. And so that's how I want us to hear what Paul's warning us against. And therefore, I would define for you the stoicheia as both the spiritual powers and the basic moral and religious principles of creation that have been distorted and corrupted by human beings and in the fall. And that therefore, although they are, are good and had their proper place at one time, they now enslave us. They exercise domination over us. They, they are by nature good, created by God, but they've been distorted by our own rebellion to become our idols, to become our masters. Think about in Romans 1, where Paul talks about how although God's attributes are clearly revealed such that people should give thanks to him and worship him, instead they suppress the truth and worship the creature rather than the creator, thus serving idols that become their masters. Well, the creatures they're worshiping are good, they're created by God, but we turn them into something they were never meant to be. Similarly, in Romans 1, Paul goes on by a parallel logic to say that because of sin, people turn sexuality into something it was never meant to be, twisting it and distorting it so that it enslaves us according to the passions of lust. Paul's concerned about the way we take created things, even creational principles that are, are not just good, but really good in and of themselves, that are intended to draw us to worship God as our creator and turn them into idols that then enslave us. And we do this for various reasons. We're sinners, of course. We're in a, a fallen world, but we still have that longing that God gave us as people made in his image for fulfillment, for love, for community, for fellowship, for ultimate truth. But because we have broken our covenant with God, because we're not finding satisfaction in God as the one who gives us all these things, we end up seeking it in other things and turning them into idols. Or we long to be secure, we long to be safe, we fear death, we fear the loss of all that we hold dear, and so we, having broken our covenant with God, we turn to things God has created to try to find security and safety. If you've ever read uh, the famous book of the early church father, Augustine, his confessions, 
in that, he describes his long journey of looking in every possible area he could to find fulfillment, to find peace. And, and as an, an intellectual, he had done it all. He, he had sought fulfillment in sexual relationships, in family. He had a son. Uh, he, he also sought it in every philosophical and religious school of thought that he could find. Until he finally said these famous words in his prayer of realizing that he could only find peace in God, he wrote to God, you have made us and drawn us to yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So I don't think Paul just has in view here literal idols or superstitions. I think he's thinking about all kinds of good things that we serve and that come to dominate us. Things like sex, which God created good in order that we might love one another and be fruitful. And yet we turn it into a way to feed our own lust. Or we turn even good sexual relationships, even marriages into idols, imagining that there we will find true fulfillment and happiness in life. Even if it comes at the expense of following God's will. Or perhaps it's money. Money's a good thing, used rightly, but perhaps we think that if we can get enough money, we can buy the things or the relationships that we need that will tr truly make us happy and secure. Or perhaps it's power itself, maybe our own personal power that we think protects us or gives us a sense of meaning and status. Or maybe it's cultural or political power. Our, our certain view of what America should be or, or what our community should be or what political party should be in control. Maybe for us, maybe we don't aspire to those sorts of things. Maybe it's just our own individual autonomy. Of course, God made each individual human being very good. And God calls us to exercise our wisdom and, and make decisions that are wise and good as we govern our lives in his creation. But we turn that into an idol that says that unless I'm always doing what I want to do and follow my vision, then my rights are being violated because that's what I serve first and foremost. But maybe it's something else. Maybe it's your family. Your your husband or wife or your kids, or maybe your extended family or your, your friendship network, your community, and you think that's where it's really at. Life's short, but if I pursue those things and I have my priorities straight and I'm faithful to my family and serve them well, that's where happiness will be found and I'll be living the good life. And if anything threatens those things, I will fight it tooth and nail because that's my life. Or maybe it's religious traditions. Maybe you, you find a lot of peace in traditions that were handed down to you by your parents or by your church. And you think, in, in these ceremonies or rituals, I feel so much peace. Or here, I, I feel this emotional high where everything seems right. And they become an end in of themselves to you. Just like the law of Moses did for many Jews. To the point that when Jesus came and fulfilled the law of Moses, they weren't willing to follow him because they loved their religious traditions more than they loved 
the God who gave them to them. Or maybe it's a system of rules. Rules are good, but maybe you turn them too into an idol, becoming a legalist who will hold fast to your rules no matter what, and therein find your confidence that you are a good person, a righteous person who others owe respect. We seek salvation from the fears and sorrows of life in all of these things. They're good things, but we make them idols, or we make them our masters. They come to have an outsized importance to us to the point that they, they actually control our lives, and because they're so dear to us, they even distort our understanding of the gospel. And if the gospel asks us to do something that forces us to give up one of these idols, we won't do it. And so we revise the gospel instead, so it won't challenge us or what we hold most dear. And then these things consume our time and our energy. And because they lead to different factions of Christians, each serving its own idol, they actually divide us. Because our focus isn't on Christ anymore, it's on all these other things. And then when these idols fail us, as they inevitably do, they lead us to despair, bitterness, even cynicism. They rob us of the joy of the gospel. What spiritual forces or basic principles that God made good, but that have been corrupted, hold power over you? What fears and anxieties consume you? Where do you find yourself resting your hopes for deliverance? Paul's warning us not to be taken captive through hollow and deceptive ideas that depend on human tradition or the basic spiritual forces and principles of the world, all of which may have once been good, but now are all distractions from where we should really be focused, as he says there at the end of the sentence, on Christ. And that leads us to the positive reminder, which... The focus there is on that statement Paul makes in verse 10. In Christ, you have been brought to fullness. But his broader comment there is, For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you've been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. There are basically three arguments packed into these verses. First, Jesus is God. This is one of the most explicit statements of the deity of Christ in all of Scripture. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And so if you're seeking the ultimate meaning of life, if you're seeking your ultimate fulfillment, if you're seeking security from the death that reigns all around us, where else would you find it 
than in the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, in Christ. As Philip said to Jesus in John's gospel, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Philip knew that God should be his focus. What he didn't know, though, is that he would come to God only through the man who was standing right in front of him, Jesus. And so Jesus responds to Philip, He who has seen me has seen the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's the foundation of everything Paul is going to say. But then the second part of his argument here is not just that Jesus is God, but that Jesus has been made the head of all rule and authority. And here too, this phrase, rule and authority, is really important to understanding what Paul is trying to say here. It's what ties the second part of this passage back to the first part. This concern for rule and authority actually uh, is central to Paul's thought all through Colossians 1 and 2. In Colossians 1 verse 13, he has told us that Christ has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And then in Colossians 1 verse 16, he reminds us that all thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, rule and authority, were created in Christ. They're creational things. They're good. Created in Christ. And then in verse 20, he has told us that all these powers, all these things, therefore including rule and authority, have been reconciled to God through Christ. So what is this rule and authority that Paul's talking about that he keeps coming back to and that he'll come back to again in chapter 2, verse 15? What is rule and authority? Well, this phrase actually appears many times in the New Testament. In some places, it refers to angels or spiritual powers. In other places, it refers to human rulers or civil authorities. And in some cases, it's ambiguous. It's not clear which of those it's referring to. And there's no evidence that it should be limited to one meaning or another. Again, we look back and we think, well, what does he mean? Does he mean spiritual forces or does he mean human civil authorities? But in the ancient world, those were not such separate things. In the ancient world, politics and religion was deeply fused together. Remember, this is the day of emperor worship, the emperor cult. And so when he's talking about all rule and authority, he's talking about all rule and authority, whether human or spiritual, angels, demons, political figures, whatever it is. And that means that there's a parallel here to what I was explaining earlier in that phrase, stoicheia, elementary principles or spiritual forces. In both cases, Paul is talking about all of these powers, all of these rules and principles that were created good, but have become corrupted to the point that they enslave us. And you actually see this come to expression in the book of Revelation in fascinating ways. Obviously, Revelation is not written by Paul, but by John. But there, John shows how in the pagan world, as he views it, not just the devil and not just 
pagan religion, but also the power of Rome and of commerce and of ideology and of wealth and luxury and all these aspects of culture had all become part of the devil's war against God's people. They're all part of the world that persecutes the saints. And so what Paul is telling us in our text then is that by Jesus, who is God, by his death, resurrection, and ascension, he has conquered all of these powers, all rule and authority, all the stoicheia, all the principles of the world, all the spiritual forces, all the things we make our idols, all the things that enslave us. As Paul goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 15, by his death on the cross, Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And so this leads to what he wants us to walk away with, this claim in verse 10. In Christ, if you're in Christ, who is God and has all rule and authority, in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. This is the amazing heart of the gospel for Paul. It's not just that Jesus did all these glorious and wonderful things. It's that by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith, you are united to Jesus such that everything that he has done, you have done. Everything he's accomplished, you have accomplished. All the status that he has, you have. His rule over the authorities and powers is your rule. His freedom from the spiritual forces and elementary principles is your freedom. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. You, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You could spend a lot of time meditating on that and what that could possibly mean. If you do you'll see that the, the petty things of this world that you serve, the idols that enslave you, the good things that you make too much of, they have no power apart from Christ. They have no ability to fill you apart from Christ. They have no ability to give you security apart from Christ. They too were made to serve Christ. And they've been given to you as gifts so that through them you might serve Christ. Sex was given to us so that men and women could love one another. And in that love and fruitfulness that comes from it, be a picture of the love between God and his people, between Jesus and the church. Because one day... We'll no longer be married or given in marriage, but one day we will find ourselves in that perfect love with God and with his people. Money was given to us so that 
we might meet each other's needs. And so practice the love of Christ by serving. Power is given to us so that we might protect the weak who are committed to our care and restrain those who would harm them. Our autonomy as individuals has been given to us so that we would use our wisdom and gifts as image bearers. Jesus is the express image of God, of course, but we are called to be image bearers like him and govern all these things that have been placed under our feet. Family, marriage, and kids are are given to us to build communities that, that express the love of Christ to one another, but ultimately to point us forward to that true family the body of Christ. Religious traditions are are good because they're given to us to to help us serve God and be shaped by his truth, to be discipled and trained as Christ-like people in the freedom of the gospel. Rules are given to us to remind us of the devil's deceptions and to protect us from those things that threaten us. But none of those things are ends in themselves. None of them should be more important to us. None of them should be more important to the church than Christ. And when we make them ends in themselves, they bind us to a world of death and decay. Because relationships, money, the economy, social justice, the military, your family, your friends, your skills, your intelligence, even your churches, They'll all fail you at one point or another. People will disappoint you or betray you. Loved ones will die. You will sin and make mistakes. You'll make a mess of your own life. Eventually, no matter how well you do it, your health will fail and your body will die. But Christ will never leave you nor forsake you. That's why he told us in his Sermon on the Mount, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Of course, these are good things. Jesus isn't saying they're not good things that we shouldn't be concerned about at all. But then he says the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. Jesus has told us of the kingdom he's preparing for us. We sang of the mansions, the many mansions he's making. When creation itself is transformed into the beauty of perfection. When we as men and women experience the resurrection of our bodies and are enabled to love and serve each other with perfect love and perfect safety before the Lamb, our Redeemer. This is what we truly long for, even though we don't always remember that. That's what Augustine realized in the end that all the things he thought he wanted, all the things he was seeking, sex, money, power, family, religion, what he was really seeking 
was God, his creator. And the only place to find him was in Christ. And when he realized that, he experienced this peace, this fulfillment, this security that led him to say, Oh God, our hearts will always be restless until we find our rest in you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that we are often fooled, deceived by the world. We, we look at these things and they're good things. But our sinful hearts corrupt them and turn them into idols that distract us from you rather than lead us to you. And they lead us to distort the gospel in so many different ways. Lord, we even look with pain at not just our own lives, our own hearts, the ways we do this, but the ways in which this has torn your church apart and is tearing your church apart. And the only way for us to escape it is for you to come by your Holy Spirit and fill us and train our hearts and minds to look to Jesus, to put our faith in him, in whom all the fullness of deity dwells, and to see that you've given us all things in him. So Lord, we pray that you would give each person in this room that faith. We pray that you would lead to repentance in the broader church, and that even in the world, those who are held captive, who are fooled by the principles of this world, Lord, that they too would see the freedom they have in Christ and his kingdom. And we pray that in all these ways you would do far beyond what we could even ask or imagine. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.